In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. morning. What's up, balcony people? Yes, we got two up in the balcony, social distance champions up there. Way to go, way to go. Hey, um, we have uh, still, I think most of our church is, is joining us online, so could we do something this morning um, for all the online people? Could everybody say hello, onlineers? Can we try that real quick, real loud, just to make them feel welcome, make us all really feel like we're together? Can we try that? Yeah? Just warmed your voices up, so you should be beautiful. All right, let's try it. One, two, three. Hello, onliners. And now, onliners, you respond back. Can't hear you. <laughs> no, just kidding. But welcome, onliners. Thanks for joining us, for tracking with us. And, uh, and uh, we hope that when the time is right, you can join us. Welcome, everybody who's um, taking this step to be in person with us. Thank you, 8 AMers. You are our favorite people. Yes, we don't really even like the other two service people because they're, it's just a weird time. Like, so our, our next two services are getting too full, not because there's too many people, right? <laughs> because we're trying to keep the space, and so it's, uh, it's very interesting to navigate this and Lord willing, we'll have to add a fourth service. No. <laughs> I mean, yes. Like, we'll see what happens. Or, Lord willing, COVID would go away and we can actually use our entire sanctuary. <laughs> yeah. So, we have some interesting hopes and prayers these days. But, um, but it is fun. Our, our next two services are... Um, getting social distancing full, so please don't ever come to them. This is your service. This is the one for you, and invite your friends to this one, and if you can find some of those 9.30 people, which are our least favorite people, if you could invite them to the 8 a.m., then they could be our favorite people, too. So, you get what's going on. Parking is great these days, though, right? Yeah, can't beat that, right? <laughs> So anyways, very interesting time. We're navigating it. We're excited. We're going to actually have some um, other things besides just Sunday morning stuff, you know, coming up for our whole church. Life groups are still going. I want to encourage you to stick with that or join up with that if you haven't. Um, and we're going to be doing some neat things coming into this fall. Again, trying to be respectful of, of the, the situation in Phoenix um, but also continuing to, you know, serve the Lord, love one another, and, and engage in society's pain um, as much as we can. So we're going to be in, in John chapter 8, if you want to um, grab a Bible and turn there. Um, we've, been, we've been tracking with John, John um, the evangelist, as he's called, John the apostle, um, John the best friend of Jesus, um, as best we can say. Uh, John was a guy that, that's, that was, you know, 
we don't know exactly how old, but he was probably maybe late teens, early 20s, somewhere in there when he came across this guy, Jesus, and he and his brother were out fishing. Jesus said, come hang out with me. They said, okay. And they did. And they started following him and became like students of his, apprentices of his, disciples of his. And uh, through that next three years, John went from being someone who um, was following this guy who had some interesting teaching and words and was willing to invite John and his brother into this kind of rabbinic tradition, and John thought that was great, um, to believing that he was the one who made the world. (laughs) That's interesting, right? Um, He watched Jesus eat. He watched Jesus sleep. Not in the creepy way, probably. He, he saw Jesus have to go to the bathroom. I mean, we'd, like, it was just so real, right? They were hanging out. But through this time of three years and then continuing on for the next um, 60 years of his life, he became convinced that that guy, that, that young Jewish man that was walking around poor, oppressed, all of that, was actually Messiah, was God who came into this world to save the world from all their sins. And as Jay said, basically, and to restore everything forevermore. I mean, it's fascinating. And John is writing this gospel so that we, who were not there, would also begin the same journey, right? that we would begin to trust Jesus, that we would begin to follow Jesus, that we would apprentice our lives to this one named Jesus, that we would be able to recognize that he is not just some historical figure, but he really is God, forevermore alive, the savior of the world, and that John would help, would, would kind of show us the journey, that John, it was trust over time, right? That's the phrase we've been using, that we would believe means to trust more and more over time. As you continue to test Jesus in some ways, as you continue to lean on Jesus and find he is worthy, find he is stable, he is solid, he does what he says he would do, he's faithful, to his promises, that you will begin to trust more and more over time and find the riches that are there. So that's what the book of John is about. And as we see, John has shared that Jesus, basically from the beginning, you know, he was turning water into wine, he was feeding 5,000 men, he was um, healing people, he was doing all these things, and people just started to think, this guy is awesome. Now, in first century Israel, it was not a great time to be a Jew. Um, it was a tough time. They were under Roman oppression. They were, they, were, they were poor. I mean, they had this kind of aristocrat class of Pharisees and Sadducees that seemed to do well, but they were oppressive as well, making everybody feel guilty all the time. And it was a re- really tough time. Taxes were unbelievable. And, and it was just this really tough time. So then here comes this voice, this figure, this Jewish man that was able to kind of you know, like say things that, that they, the, the, it says that their hearts would burn within them as he spoke. He seemed to speak not as like the Pharisees, but one who had authority, 
Like what he said, it just seemed to make sense. It seemed to cut straight to the quick. It wasn't just kind of propaganda or rhetoric. It was so precise and so powerful and so true. And then, it would, and then he would follow it up with healing somebody. So it felt so powerful and real, but then it would actually produce something beautiful and powerful and real. We're all professionals at powerful rhetoric these days, right? We get it left side, right side. We get it front side, back side. We get it all over the place. America, that might be one of the best things we do. Powerful rhetoric, right? You got all that stuff made in China? Well, all that powerful rhetoric made in America. But, but what we are all longing for, right? I mean, what the cry of the, the American heart is, we don't want rhetoric anymore. We want justice. We want truth. We want righteousness. We want peace. We want unity. These are the things we long for. And the, and the words just, we don't trust them as much anymore. There's just too many words going too many different ways. And so we have this cynical heart kind of rising up within us. And that was the people in that day, except for Jesus was this weird exception. He was holy. He was righteous. He was acting and living in such a pure way that that it seemed very different. But then there was power and authority and substance. So all these people started following. And then that moment, John chapter um, 6, the end of John chapter 6 is kind of this culminating moment where John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, just had his head cut off by a Jewish official that had been given power by the Romans. He cut his head off. And the people, they lost it. They couldn't take it anymore. They wanted to do something, and so they marched out to where Jesus was, out in the wilderness, grieving the loss of his cousin and grieving the depravity of humanity. And they came out to him, 5,000 strong, 5,000 men, and they tried to make him king by force. Which, again, I don't quite know how that goes down. <laughs> like, be a king, man, be a king. I don't know, like... I don't, it just sounds weird, but basically they were coming and there was, it was kind of a mob format and they were saying, we need a king, we need to go deal with Herod and you're going to be our king. And it says Jesus withdrew from them. And then at that moment, we have chapter 7, we have chapter 8, we have chapter 9 and we continue going and it's basically Jesus at this point of just total popularity where they want him to rule over them. They want him to, to lead them to where we get to, you know, 10 chapters later, and the same crowd, the same group is gathered together, and they're shouting, we will not have this man rule over us. We will not have this man rule over us. And Pontius Pilate is saying, I find no fault in him. And they say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It it very well was a lot of the same people. And so John's just showing us this interesting perspective of Jesus, how he's so beautiful, so right, so true, and yet so rejected by the human heart. 
the ones he made, the ones he came to save, the ones that he shined his light on. And our question, my question to us today is, where are we at in this? What is the authority of our lives? What are we trusting in these days? What rules over the thoughts in our heads and the actions of our lives? And this chapter right here, I really do think, is Jesus' answer to say, to anyone who might say, why should I give you authority over my life? Why should I let you be in control of my life? Why should I give my life to you? I think that's, that's what the Pharisees are kind of saying to Jesus in this moment, in chapter 8. And so he gives them an answer. So we're going to go through seven answers as to why Jesus should be the authority over our lives. Why Jesus should be your boss. Why you should follow him. Why you should commit everything to him, even if it costs you your own life. This is the answer. John chapter 8. But before we get there, we actually have to read John chapter 7, um, verse 52, because it sets it up. Um, all right, the early manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part, after John 7:36, John 21:25, Luke 21 through 38, and Luke 24:53. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. <laughs> so that's kind of the way 7:52 ends and begins chapter eight. Now, just a little bit of history for us: the Bible was written, Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament was written in Greek with a little bit of Aramaic mixed in there. And, and the chapters and the verses weren't, weren't in there when they were written. John didn't write, okay, I'm gonna put these chapters in here. John just wrote this as a, as a letter, something that could be circulated throughout the churches, something that could be kind of shared with people. It was basically like if you were to sit down and write why you believe in Jesus, and then you, you had people in mind that you were like, I want, I want to send this to. That's the way John was written. And John was written well after the other gospels were written. The other gospels had already been written and circulated. And so John is towards the end of his life. He's living probably in Ephesus. He's out in a Greco-Roman world, a little bit away from the Jewish context. And he just decides he, he can't not do this. He knows the other gospels have been written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and some others, but he's like, I, I just, I want to write my point of view. I want to write my letter to the people I have in mind. So this really is his evangelistic letter that he is passing out to the world, um, his take. But it's interesting here because it says that, that the early manuscripts um, and many other witnesses do not have the story. So there's the short story many of us are familiar with where... Um, a woman who is caught in the act of adultery is brought to Jesus, and it's kind of this trap that's been set for him um, by the Pharisees and Jewish leaders. And, and so I just, I just want to make note that, that the Bible here is, is trying its best, the NIV writers, and, and they're trying their best to just give you where all this is coming about. So it's actually in italics, if you noticed. And basically what they're saying is, is they're saying, this has shown up in, a lot, in, in some of the manuscripts that we have, the ancient manuscripts that, you know, that we've been trying to, to discover and find, but it doesn't show up in all of the early ancient manuscripts like many of the other, like everything else. And, and so they're giving you this footnote. They're just kind of saying, hey, so this one, we are putting it in here 
because we do think this actually does pass the tests that we give it to make it into this. We do see it show up enough to think, ah, we better not leave it out because I think it is true and valid. However, it's different than all the other stuff, so we just want to put a footnote so that everybody's clear, everybody knows what's happening, and so you can decide what you want to do with it. What if the media was like this? <laughs> what if the media today was only telling us stories that were so verified by so many manuscripts, by so much testing, and anytime there was anything shady or shaky or not 100% verifiable, they were like, now just so you know, would we have any news? I mean, how short would that? It would just be all commercials. I don't know. I mean, I just, what I'm trying to say is the Bible has so much integrity you, you don't even understand. I can't get into it like I want to, but you should look it up. If you have any question whether the Bible is a reliable authority in your life, do some work, please. Please. Especially you younger generation that, that has been told for so long that the Bible is oppressive or antiquated. Please do some work. I mean, just to tell you, all the other acceptable works of antiquity, they basically have anywhere between like 100 kind of artifacts or manuscripts, maybe, maybe 5,000 if you want to find like, like Homer's Iliad or something like that. The Bible has over 25,000. I mean, the, it's not even a contest. If you believe that Caesar was a real person, you're going on so much more faith than it would take to believe the Bible and the stories they're saying. The historicity is, of the Bible is unbelievable. It's not even a question at all. The only parts of the Bible that they're still like, well, we don't really know this, it, it just, it's because they don't know yet. And so many times they've been like, ha, ah, the Bible's wrong here, the Bible's wrong here. And then 100 years later, they'll find something and be like, okay, well, it was right. So anyways, please do some work, but, but we're talking about authority today. The Bible is such a good authority. It has withstood the test of time. This is not new stuff that our society is facing. The Bible has handled this, you know, generation after generation after generation after generation, and it's proven itself to be true. And those who doubt it or those who live without it do so to their own demise. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Anyways, let's continue on. So he went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, again, I mean, this is a horrific situation. This is, this is religious leaders doing exactly what religious leaders have done often and are continuing to do. They're abusing power. They're trying to get what they want through without really caring about people, and it happens all the time, and, it, and, it's, and it's sad, and it's horrible. And that's what's happening to this woman. I'm sure they set the trap for her so they could make sure and find her, and now they're bringing her to Jesus. And, th and this, is, this is a woman who has a mom and a dad, probably some siblings, 
And this is a horrible situation. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped out and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and and leave your life of sin. It's just a short story, a real quick instance of something that happened in Jesus' life, a trap that was set for him. And the trap basically goes between these two things. The Jewish law says that, yes, you know, a woman caught in adultery should be stoned, but there's also laws for the man, and where's the man? Like, there's just a whole bunch of mess here. But it is true that that was a law. God, God is deadly serious about sin, no doubt about it. But then on the other hand, the Romans would, had a law that no one could be, you know, they, were, they alone were able to issue capital punishment. So if the Jews would have done this, they would have been in violation of the Roman law. So Jesus is caught in that trap, not to mention the, the trap between like, I thought Jesus would love people and now he's, you know, issuing orders to, to kill a woman versus I thought Jesus was about the truth and, you know, he's not following. Like, so you can see all the different traps that they were setting for Jesus here. And yet Jesus, knowing everything, he stoops down and he just starts writing. We don't know what he was writing. I, I kind of think he's probably writing the Ten Commandments. Just be like, here's the Ten Commandments, you know, because everybody's like, now who, whoever's without sin, you know, you cast the first stone. People are like, oh, man. You know? I, I don't know what he was writing down. But then it's weird because it, then it says they left oldest to youngest. And uh, that part I don't know because he stooped back down when he was writing. Maybe he was just writing kind of writing their names down next to one of them just in case you weren't getting it, you know? Maybe he was writing a date down or whatever. I don't know. But so, for some reason, it was enough to, for these guys to just be like, all right, I'm out. Oldest to youngest. And then Jesus looks at this woman, and he's like, where are your accusers? And they said, they've all gone. And yet Jesus couldn't stop there because there was one who was worthy, who was without sin, who could cast the first stone. And that was him. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And that's the first point. Why should you make Jesus the ultimate authority in your life? Because he knows what you've done. He has the right to punish you forevermore. And yet he does not condemn you. This is a fascinating thing. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Guess what? If you are not in Christ, there is condemnation for you. If you want nothing to do with Jesus, God will grant that to you forever. And it's called utter darkness. It's called hell. To be out without the love and light and peace of of Christ. That's the scary thing. There is condemnation. God does have wrath against sin. And if you are still in your sin, there is wrath for you. But whoever comes to Christ, whoever is in Christ, hidden in Christ, the wrath of God is stayed because Jesus took it all. 
There is no condemnation because you've been robed in his righteousness. He doesn't condemn you. Now, here's the deal. He will convict you. <laughs> he will convict you. Christians live with convictions. We're like, oh, I want to go, oh, better not do that, you know? Oh, that's pretty cool. Oh, probably shouldn't look at that. You know, like we're walking around with these convictions, but these convictions are guiding us more into the light, further into the grace of God. And so we live with these convictions, but these convictions are not condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if you feel that guilt and that shame in your life from the sin that you have done, if you don't feel guilt and shame from sin, that's a whole nother problem. But for those of you that understand that you are a sinner, you have hurt people, you have done wrong, and you feel that guilt and shame, come to Jesus because he does not condemn you. He will actually do away with that guilt and shame. And you can live in freedom. You can live as a beloved. It's so amazing. Anybody here ever gotten free of their condemnation and guilt and shame? Come on now, come on now. Okay, so that's number one. Let's keep going. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. You don't have authority to do this. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know my, me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not come. So the second, first reason we should put, make, if you're asking the question, why should I have Jesus rule over my life, be authority in my life? Because he won't condemn you, which is fascinating, even though you do wrong. It's amazing, so amazing. The second reason is because Jesus should have ultimate authority over your life because he knows, oh, sorry, that Jesus had, should have ultimate authority over your life because he stands with the Father. He stands with the Father. He says that I, I know where I've come from and where I'm going. He's come from the Father. He's going to the Father. Um, he's standing at the Father's right side. And this is so interesting because um, all of this kind of back and forth picking sides that's going on in our nation right now um, you, you know, in, in lots of different ways, where you're at with COVID, where you're at with racial relations, where you're at with politics, where you're at with church, opening or closing, like where you're at, all this, there's just so many ways that we can divide ourselves right now and pick a side. And early on in this, I felt like the Lord was really bringing to mind that story where Joshua was just about to go fight the battle of Jericho and he was off by himself one night and all of a sudden he sees this, this shiny figure, this, this angel type person dressed as a warrior approaching him and he stands up and he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Are you on our side or are you on their side? And, and, and the, the warrior answers and says, no, neither. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord of hosts, and the place you're standing is holy. It's like, you, I, don't, don't even try and put me on a side. Here's the deal. Humanity is on the wrong side. They got a lot of different sides over there, but they're all wrong. 
Anything of human origin is ultimately going to leave you empty. But the goal of your life should be to get on over to the Lord's side. It's not a matter of, are you, are you on our side or are you on their side? God, pick a side. God, join a side. He said, no, I'm not going to join a side. We've already seen Jesus is like, I don't need human witness. I'm not going to submit myself to, to human opinion. I'm not going to submit myself to the polls, so to speak. There is God's side. And so why should we have Jesus be the ultimate authority on life? Because he's on God's side. He stands with the Father. He's on the right side. And if we stand with him, we're going to find ourselves, no matter what circumstances we are in, to be on the right side. The right side. And that's where Jesus is able to stay and, and, and is right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. Let's continue on. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, and you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. So the next thing, Jesus should have ultimate authority over your life because he is not of this world. And it's similar to being on God's side. It kind of, you know, meshes here a little bit. But, but Jesus is not of human origin. Jesus isn't here today, gone tomorrow. All the faith and trust we put in human leaders or human figures, they, they will let us down. Even if they never let us down, they're going to die. That's a letdown. But Jesus is different. He's the only one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There have been many people who have said, I know the way, I know the truth, I know the life, and you can go visit their graves. But there's one who claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life, and you just can't find him, his body. It's just not there. Because he is risen from the dead. The true enemies of humanity are not each other. It's sin and death, and Jesus conquered them forevermore. He conquered them forevermore. That brings us to the next point. Jesus said, I have ultimately authority over your life because he rose from the dead and is coming back again. So in this, you know, G Jesus is just continually to, to, to setting the stage for this moment. He says, if I be lifted up, you know, if I be lifted up, and I've always thought that was on the cross. If he is lifted up, then everyone will know. But I, I think he's referring maybe to the cross, but, but even more so, when I'm lifted up out of the grave, when I'm lifted up out of the grave, you will know that I am who I say I am. They go on, they said they didn't understand this, what he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has, left, he has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. And then he goes on and says, to the Jews who had believed in him, he said, if you, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. 
and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we'll be free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you that I've seen in the Father's presence and you are doing what you have done, what you have heard from your father. Abraham's our father, they answered. If you are Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you will do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And so now Jesus is kind of bringing it home a little bit. He's kind of talking about his authority from being with the Father, authority that if you lift me up, if once I'm lifted up, you're gonna see what authority I have when I'm raised from the dead. And he's going through this, and then he starts saying, and, and you guys are trying to kill me. And they don't deny it now. Remember before the last chapter, they were like, why is he saying this? Are you crazy? And they're like, this time they're not denying it. And he says it twice. And here's the next thing. Jesus should have ultimate authority over your life because he knows the evil in humanity's heart. He's not deceived. He's not fooled. And it's hard these days to not be deceived or fooled. It's really hard these days because the rhetoric is so powerful. And yet, if you make Jesus the Lord of your life, he's not swayed by popular opinion. He's not confused. A good way that I've heard people talk about it is, is like we're, we're at this parade, you know, there's this parade and the parade's coming by you know, little by little. And here we are standing on the, the sidewalk and we're watching the parade and we can see what's happening in front of us. And, if, and if, if we're really wise, we can see maybe like what's coming. And then we can also maybe kind of figure out what's been and that can help us a little bit. So we have a little bit of a wide perspective. You know, the zeitgeist of, of history can help us understand where we are today, but we can't really understand our own time. But then maybe some of us can see what's coming a little bit. But God's perspective is he's like up in this blimp, up above the whole thing. You know, like he's not limited to just seeing a section of time. He can see it all, start to finish. He knows where it turns. He knows where it straightens out. He knows every part of it, of history. He sees it all perfectly. And he can see into the human heart. He can see the selfish ambition. He can see all of the, you know, power plays. He can see all the manipulation. He can see all of that. He's not fooled by that. And it's not just out there, it's in ourselves. Sometimes we can't even see our own. I remember that was a big deal for me in my marriage early on. I, I was very persuasive. My, again, I grew up, my brothers and parents called me the tyrant. So I was the youngest, and I guess it was the only way I could get things done. I was very persuasive. My dad said I should have been a lawyer. I was good at arguing. Now I'm a preacher. Nobody, I just say what I say. Nobody can argue with me. No, just kidding. But I was very persuasive and I got married and I remember just like, you know, again, I, I was altruistic in my persuasion as far as I was concerned. But I remember one time Brittany looking at me and just going, I need you to stop talking. 
I was like, what? She said, because I know something's wrong, but if you keep talking, I know you'll convince me you're right. And it broke my heart. It crushed me because she was right. I was not just saying the truth to her. I was always trying to spin it a little bit, even though I wasn't trying to like hurt her. I just wanted her to see and feel it the way I saw and felt it instead of just letting her decide how she sees and feels it, and then we work from there. There's this major moment in my life. She couldn't name it, but she could sense it. And I had a lot of repenting to do in a lot of areas of my life. And this is the beauty of Jesus, is because he sees straight through it. You can't sway him. <laughs> you can't, you can't you know, convince him of something that isn't right and true, because he knows. He's an awesome authority, so different than everyone else that we can give authority to. All right, let's bring this home. Then Jesus answered, um, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? <laughs> the Jews said that to him. I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they claim, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say you, whoever obeys your, your word will not taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abram rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And you are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham? Very truly, Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to, to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple guards. So this is a, this is a big moment. Again, still, people are, are, are say that Jesus never claimed to be God. He, yes, he did. He, yes. And, and he did so, so often and so clearly that they kept trying to kill him and ultimately did. So here's Jesus. The last thing is, you know, why should Jesus be the authority of our life? Because he is the I am. Because he is the I am. And if you read the scriptures, you get a full understanding of what that means. But basically, that means he's the Alpha and the Omega. He is what you need. He is what the world needs. Again, he's not the Jesus we want all the time. He's always the Jesus we need. And right now, what the world needs is Jesus. Right now, what you need is Jesus. And amazingly enough, he has made an offer to you that you can join him, you can follow him, you can be a part of his family. And he will come in, and the authority that he brings is not an oppressive authority. It's an authority that sets you free. I was watching a little bit of Braveheart last night. It was on TV. Anybody? Anybody watch it? No? Yeah, there we go. And basically, Robert the Bruce, who was king of Scotland... He was talking about William Wallace, who was basically the hero of Scotland. And he was saying, I don't want men to follow me because I punish them if they don't. I want them to follow me like they follow William Wallace. His life, his words, his actions inspired people to follow him. And that's the difference. The Pharisees basically would punish the people or, or speak judgment from God to them if they didn't do what they wanted him to do.
And Jesus spoke in a different way and lived in a different way. He inspired people to follow him because he was the truth and he had the truth and he spoke the truth and he acted in truth. Even to the extent of dying and rising from the dead. And again, if you want to study the, 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 the historicity of that, that act of resurrection, there's more proof about the resurrection than almost any other event in human history because it's been a focal point for sure. But Jesus is a, is a trustworthy authority and he'll lead you to life. Um, one last little analogy before we close. Um, we had a guy speaking here on Tuesday and he was talking about how he used to own a car wash and, uh, in New York. And uh, in that car wash, he would, um, you know, have the little kind of signs and the little instructions when people would drive up. And he was talking about how in his life, that's what it's meant to trust Jesus, to give him authority is, is he, he has to, you know, put, put the car in neutral, right? The, put his life in neutral, like come to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, I'm here and I'm letting go. And then he needed to take his hands off the wheel, right? Just take your hands off the wheel. And he needed to take his foot off the brake. Because <laughs> it's like, God, I'm going to give you control. I'm going neutral. God, I'm taking my hands off the wheel. Whatever you say, we'll do. <laughs> All right, God, what are we doing? We're going there? Okay. We're just slamming on that brake because it's scary. I love Pope Francis. One of his quotes is, ask God what he wants you to do and then be brave. And then be brave. And I think he could say, ask God what, you want, what he wants you to do and then take your foot off the brake. Take your foot off the brake. Take your foot off the brake. And right now as Christians, it's very important for us. Uh, this is my you know, three things. Consecration. If we really want to have the authority in this moment, to be able to speak in a way and live in a way that other people will find Jesus, we need to consecrate ourselves. We need to come out of some things. We need to unsubscribe some things. Consecration is a very important thing right now. We need to intercede. Intercession is so important. Make sure your prayers are not just about you right now, please. Don't, don't just pray about your stocks and bonds. Don't just pray about your needs. This is a time for the church to pray for others. I'm not saying God, God cares about your needs. You can pray for those too, but make sure your prayers also include others. It's a time for intercession and it's a time for evangelism. And we're gonna talk some more about that in the coming weeks, but there's nothing that makes Jesus happier than when you tell somebody about him. That's it. There's nothing that makes him happier. Nothing. And Jesus, we do ask that you would you would consecrate us. You would pull us close to you. Show us where we're entangled in the world. Show us the sin and the weight that, that entangles us and help us to pull away from that, Lord. Pray you'd show us and teach us how to intercede in this time. That we would get to see mighty things happen because of our prayer life. And Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunities this week to tell people about who you are and what you can do. We pray all this in your name. Amen.